Hey, it's me, Witt Schiller, with our sixth episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. In this episode, I talk with Neil Malarkey, who, along with Mike Myers, pre-SNL, were part of the founding of the Comedy Store Players in London. That's a group that the Guinness Book of World Records recognizes as the world's longest-running comedy show with the same cast. Although Mike Myers returned to Toronto to accept a position on the main stage cast for Second City in Toronto soon after the group's founding, Neil and most others have been with the group since 1985 or 1986. There's more to the story, but since my time recording this episode with Neil, I've been trying to get my mind around the experience of having not only such a consistency in the cast that he plays with, but also the remarkable consistency in the venue and the way their show is laid out. Although I do suspect most improvisers would drool at the thought of having an annual gig at the Globe Theater, something that the Comedy Store Players is doing for the 22nd year in a row on October 18th, 2019, soon after this episode launches. Anyway, some of this episode is a treatment of the history of improv generally, but you'll also want to stick around for the latter portion of the interview where we discuss his book and the corporate improv-based training that Neil has been doing too. So let's get into the Neil Malarkey episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. Thanks, Neil, for being on the Improv Comedy Connection. I'm interested to hear about your very unusual and different story about how you started with improv. I'd, I'd like to start there, and then I'll also want to chat with you about some things that you're doing in improv-based training. You've got a book on people skills that I found very interesting. But can we start with how you got exposed to improv comedy back in the 80s, I think. It was. It started in 1985. I was doing a show with my former colleagues from the Cambridge Footlights, which is a college sketch group from Cambridge University. You might have heard of it. Hugh Laurie was in it, Emma Thompson, Stephen mm. Fry, Sasha Baron Cohen later, uh, Peter Cook, one of the progenitors of the satire boom of the 1960s that was a big thing here in the UK. So Mike Myers had just arrived in London. His parents are British. He has a British passport. He came to Britain because it's the land of Peter Sellers. It's the land of Monty Python. And he was living in a part of West London called Ladbroke Grove. At that time, fairly grungy, but I may say that our former Prime Minister, David Cameron, lived there. Maybe still does, but it's now gone a bit more gentrified. But he was passing a small theatre above a pub, and he saw Cambridge Footlights. So I was with a group from the Cambridge Footlights. We'd graduated, so we we had to say ex-Cambridge Footlights, because the current year were able to use in that name. And uh, so he knocked on the door and said, hey, can I help? And the people who were running the theatre said, oh, I don't know. Okay, who are you? Just... You know, you can paint the set and you can sell tickets if you like. So I first met Mike. He was selling our tickets. He was sitting in a wheelchair because we'd used all the regular chairs on the set. So that was the only chair that was available for him. He was sitting in a coat and a scarf because there was no central heating. He was selling our tickets, these little sort of raffle tickets people would pay heaven knows, a few pounds to come see our show. We saw, we had two shows. One was a theatre piece, a play, which we thought was um, influenced by Dario Fo, the great Italian anarchist farceur. We called it Feeling the Benefit. It was about what we knew about. At that stage, we spent a lot of time on social security, having graduated with no prospects. We had been lucky enough to tour the UK and tour Australia doing the Footlights show, Mm. but we'd experienced also having to sign on, which was a thing and still is a thing for many people here. However, Mike was selling tickets and he made me laugh. He was just a funny guy. And I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm writing sketches. I said, nobody's interested in sketches now. It was all what was called alternative comedy, stand-up, double acts, political satire changing the form if you like what what is comedy and i said i'll take you to a few places if you like so i took him to some comedy clubs and i said and he 
let's do a double act because he just made me laugh. I remember he did a thing which he then later did in Wayne's World where he pretended to walk down some stairs in the street the other side of a car. Uh, and I said, let's do a sketch using that somehow. So we'd spent hours. Uh, he was behind the sofa. I was behind two chairs covered with a blanket. Try and find out how we could do sketches, which relied on you not seeing the bottom half of the person. Mm -hmm. we, ha we had about 15 gags and we created a story around it. But Mike had come. I knew from the world of improv. He'd come from Second City, Toronto. He'd been touring with their touring company and hadn't been promoted to the Toronto main stage and thought, I'll take a break. And came to the UK with his girlfriend, who also had a British passport, thanks to her grandparents. I said, what is this improv? Because a friend of mine had seen an improv show at the Edinburgh Festival. She said it was great. It was wonderful, inventive and funny. And I said, no, 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 it can't be improvised. This can't be done. Because I'd come from the world of Cambridge Footlights, of sketches. You write sketches, you rewrite sketches, you try them out, you rewrite them in the light of audience reaction. And Mike said, no, there's this thing. It started, Second City, it started actually with a social worker in the 1920s. And she was helping children. And I said, this is fascinating. And he said, we have this whole ethos. It's about listening and treating what you hear as an offer, building on your fellow players' offers. You make assumptions, you have choices, you endow your fellow player, and you build a scene, you co-create. This sounds fun, I thought. And improv was not a big thing. There was one group here called Omelette Broadcasting. Their motto is saying, you can't make comedy without breaking an egg, or something like that. And they were doing well. But it wasn't a thing that most people knew of. If you were in the theatre, you knew it was improv or improvisation as a way of devising theatre. So there's a man, a man called Mike Lee who had devised things and write stuff up and they become plays and they become TV plays. And of course, he's done cinema since then. But it wasn't really known as a, a thing where you have the, the gall to say to an audience, we don't have a script, give us mm -hmm. money, mm -hmm. come see our show. And so the first show we did, October 27th, 1985, the first half was stand-ups, because we thought people would come see stand-ups who had material. And mm -hmm. then we did improv in the second half, and it was tough to get people in. Um, the people who started it were Kit Hollerbach, who'd done a lot of work in San Francisco mm -hmm. with Robin Williams and others, and a guy called Dave Cohen, who was one of those stand-ups who did the uh, stand-up in the first half of the show and, uh, and has become a wonderful writer as well since then. So... We, we weren't quite sure, and we had a few people, Canadians, Americans, who might help us out because it was obviously a better-known art form in, right. in North America. And Mike and Kit would teach us, and we gradually got there to understand, but they would, they would carry the show, really. We were it, very much in their slipstream because the first time I performed with Mike, we did uh, our double act, which was imaginatively named Malarkey and Myers. Very good. And we... <laughs> we'd worked out a little sketch that lasted about two minutes, which was us singing the song Tequila. Da -da 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 -da. Tequila. And the conceit, if you will, was that after a while we'd say words other than tequila, beginning with T, and then veer off T. And we thought it was funny, and then at some point we'd open our jackets and we'd have the word tequila written inside. Uh, it was a start. It was, <laughs> it was um, a start, exactly. It was a pontoon, <laughs> if you like, crossing the river to, the, to where Malachi and Myers would venture after that. But you were doing improv in that duo act as well. Well, this was the thing. that The first time we did it, we didn't have, we were supposed to have five minutes for a tryout section. Okay. So we had to do three minutes improv, and I'd never done it. And Mike took a suggestion that he started doing stuff. He was being a character, I think, from Star Trek or something. And my head was literally spinning. I had no idea what to say and what to do or anything. What's the, ah, bleh. Did you have a game format? 
no, no, it was just, I think it was just, just open. So I just let Mike do stuff and I go, mm -hmm, yeah, great. <laughs> and so uh, Mike had enthused me because I discovered that many of my heroes had come from improv because I loved North American comedy and I still do. So Alan Alder from MASH, um, the Blues Brothers, um, Alan Arkin, these people I discovered had come from this world. And so I went on a, an improv workshop and it was a man called Desmond Jones who had worked with Keith Johnson here in the UK. And I just loved it. The idea of yes and, the idea of playing scenes, creating characters from nothing, physical life, objects, allowing that unconscious to come to the fore, co-creating with another person. I fell in love and I still am in love with the art form. Mm -hmm. And you could see the journey that others would go through, which is, uh, I better say something good. Oh, no, I just better say what builds on the scene. And that transformation was wonderful to see in some and, and others who just found it quite hard because they still wanted to be right and be good and noticed I noticed that sometimes the pause was the best offer. Sometimes saying yes and just the great game was, I don't know if you know the one, it's worse than that. Yes. Right. So the butler says to the manor, the, the, the lord or something, you know, I've, I've crashed the car. Really? That's terrible. Well, it's worse than that. I, I, you know, killed all your pheasants. Oh, it's worse than that. Well, you know, I'm, I've been sleeping with your wife or whatever. So just the joy of some of these structured games. And we started the Comedy Store Players because the Comedy Store here in the UK uh, had been persuaded that maybe we could try this. And so we did. Uh, it was a Sunday night. The other nights, Friday, Saturday, they did stand up. And by about January 1986, we were allowed to do the entire show. And Mike and Kit were still teaching us and they were teaching other people would-be performers on a Saturday afternoon, and some of those would come guests with us as well. But we were gradually beginning to find our feet. What did those but shows? Like, what did those shows look like at that time? <laughs> well, I was going to say, when you meet improvisers now, they've all graduated from a six-month course, an eight-week course, whatever, right. and they know what they're doing. We didn't. We were learning on the job. We really were. And so, of course, you begin to realize how powerful the yes and is, and how. Um, you can be bold in the choices you can make. Uh, the rules are there to be used and developed, but you, we weren't fully on top of it at all. So, for example, there was a thing that possibly you do called directors. And, of course, the UK audience didn't know film directors, so we called it theatre styles and mm -hmm. film styles. And that we got, got used to that, and Mike and Kit would do that. We were no good at that because we, we didn't know how to do some of the stuff. We weren't sure how to embody those particular genres so those shows were pretty ropey i mean i can't imagine how anybody would come back but people did and then mike got the call back he went to to toronto for the summer uh for a summer holiday in 86 and they said mike we need you in the main stage we could do with some of your ingenuity creativity and the time is right and he called me and said i'm going to go back to canada and his father was unwell and so it all added up to his decision to return uh, but he came back to do the Edinburgh Festival in 86, uh, where Malarkey and Myers triumphed. We had sellout houses. We were on the TV. And Mike and I have kept in touch ever since. We did our show in Toronto that year, and I've helped him with a couple of his things, uh, for example. So I married an ex-murderer, and last year and the year before with his new character for The Gong Show. So we've been ch chums ever since. But uh, the, the Comedy Store continued, Comedy Store players. And actually, we had the, the Brits, we had to step up. Uh, Mike returned to 
to Canada kit left as well. We had to find our own style. It's quite a small stage, the comedy store, so it doesn't have wings. It doesn't have a large space. More of a stand-up type club, right? It's it's definitely a, a stand-up. In the old days, we used to, they used to bring in two extra bits of platform for other Sunday and show, Wednesday shows because by 89, we were able to do Wednesdays because we were doing so well that they said, come do a second night of the week. Mm-hmm. We said, are you sure? And of course, the first night we sold out. But this must be uh, also recognized that the reason we were doing well and was surely enhanced by the popularity of Whose Line Is It Anyway? Uh, there had been other attempts to put improv on the TV and Whose Line cleverly started on the radio with a right. host called Clive Anderson, a stand-up former barrister. And the clever thing about that was that his, his presence was a constant reminder to the TV audience that this is improvised. He would buzz in, he would take suggestions. There was a very clear picture of the audience behind him. There was plenty of injections of random choices and suggestions from the crowd. So it reminded the audience this really was improvised. What was the genesis of that initial cast? Because you mentioned, uh, I think, the omelette. Yeah, omelette, omelette broadcasting. Yeah, uh, and it's it's. Uh, I, I could probably draw you a Venn diagram somehow. It might have to be three dimensional. <laughs> but uh, that was four guys: Jim Sweeney, Steve Steen, uh, Justin Case, not his real name, and Peter Weir. Uh, and the same night, I think, in '85, they started a thing which was much more uh, open, free form, long form, variable improv uh, in a, in a theatre in, in central London and the show was called the Rupert Pupkin Collective and so it was basically Steve and Jim and they'd invite anybody along who actors, stand-ups, comics who wanted to play but those shows so uh, the, the comedy store players basically was Kid Hollerbach and a guy called Dave Cohen mm-hmm. um, and they'd also done a show that summer in Edinburgh with a stand-up comedian called Paul Merton who uh, is in the Comedy Store Players now and was there on the first night. Um, so it was us five, and they said, oh, Mike, you've done improv in Canada. Come along, bring your friend. He seems all right as well. So it was kind of, there was five of us, two of whom had done a lot of it in North America, three of whom were still learning as we went. And then we'd have some workshops. Any comic or actor could come along on a Wednesday to learn the skills, to learn the games. So those shows were pretty rough, as I say. I'm sure that they are. We thought we were doing okay because people laughed and we managed to get through them and Mm -hmm. people would come back and we noticed something of a loyal audience developing. And you were having fun. We were having fun, yeah. This was this was it. We were having fun, and the audience were having fun. And you could, we would invite performers whom we liked to come down and try it out. And not everybody warms to it at all. Some stand-ups and actors don't like the fact of having their script. Mm-hmm. And uh, famously, various people who I thought would come along, we said, "Oh yeah, we'll book you on Sunday." They put them in the listings. <laughs> they they failed to show, and after they say, "We were just too scared." <laughs> but yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> Because it's scary, I think. Of course, for me, it's more scary to have to stand on stage and remember my lines and know where have I got to stand for this bit. Uh, Improv is much more attuned to my sensibilities of the joy of serendipity, the pleasure of not knowing, the vulnerability Mm. of uncertainty. And for many people, that's too scary. Actors in this country, perhaps the thesis, and and there are different um, drama schools, but your job as an actor is to justify the words of the writer. And if you don't have words, where do you start? We, of course, do it the other way around, which is you're going to feel this emotion. You're going to be angry. You don't know why, but soon you'll find out why as you go in the scene. And so one of our favorite Walmart games was It's Tuesday. Do you know It's Tuesday? Uh, yes. It's, it's, yeah, it's a great warm-up game. And then we play an emo roller coaster. Okay. This is where 
freeze, and you ask the audience for another emotion. Freeze, anger, freeze, happy, whatever. Uh, uh, we also play a similar one of film and theatre. So uh, these are all, I'm sure, very standard short-form games mm-hmm. that we, were, we, we kind of stuck to. And as it happens, we still play those games. And we don't play different games. We play the same games every show. And it just feels okay because we've loosened the structure in a way in that you can have, as somebody said, I think it might have been Lee Simpson, who's one of the Comedy Store players, we may not be a, a standard improv show. It's more the story of six people putting on an improv show. What I mean by that is that, is that it's a bit of a sitcom because you get to know us as individuals. And in one scene, I can mention something to this person. And then later, they're playing a different character and they might recall a moment that we had before. So you kind of, it, the show holds together because we're kind of a bit of a family. So there's plenty of callbacks from previous scenes that uh, sort of transition across the uh, any borders that particular games may create. I wanted to follow up on that because I do find that very interesting. You have been uh, together as a, a pretty consistent cast for nearly 35 years, I guess, or coming close to that. At least Guinness uh, World Records uh, uh, recognized <laughs> you guys as being yes. very consistent. But this aspect of having two shows a week and for however long having the same uh, set list of sorts can, can you talk about, for those of us who aren't able to, to get to the comedy store, what is the set list? What games are you playing? Okay, definitely. So the first game is one, we used to call it Die, and it started out where there was one person pointing, and he or she would point at the other members of the cast. And as their finger moved on to the next person, they'd have to pick up the story. You may have a game like that. Mm-hmm. You're telling a story. It's like a, a narration. And the reason it was called Die was because the audience would, if you made a mistake, you tripped up of your words. If they all shouted Die, or if enough of them shouted Die, you would die. And then we had a thing, I don't know if you've played this, where you say to the crowd, can, can I have an object or something? And then you have to use that object in a creative death. Right. So they might say uh, chicken or mobile phone or whatever. And you've got to die with that. And it was, we found it really hard to do solo improv where some means of death occurred <laughs> <laughs> from an object that wasn't death related. Right. And I think the, uh, the nail in the coffin of that was where some, somebody, a stand up, and it was a kettle or something, was the instrument of death. So he was saying, I'll oh, just put the kettle on. Mm, it's boiling now. And then he looked to his left and pointed and said, oh, no, Indians. Oh, <laughs> and arrow, an arrow went in his, his eye. You know, we couldn't, we couldn't do that now. But it was no. kind of... <laughs> no, no, you couldn't. <laughs> you couldn't do that now. And I, I did pause a little moment there. We right, were right. counting, but I thought, you know, this was, this was 1985. But it was also... The kettle had nothing to do with the death, right? Right, at all, right. and so we just thought, well, let's let's just not embarrass ourselves anymore, uh, <laughs> and just say, when you die, you die. And then a couple of years ago, we thought that's it. Seems die seems a bit you know negative, especially because sometimes people <laughs> in the crowd, it's, it's a lot negative. <laughs> it's a lot negative, yeah. And they might say later in a scene where there's a kind of lacuna, there's a moment of oh, I don't know what to say, right. and there's some mouthy people in the crowd will say oh die uh, so we didn't want to encourage them to have that negative so now we've gone to to making them say in a slightly camp way whoops okay so uh if enough people say whoops we die so we, we just leave the stage until there's one person left and that person is announced as the winner and he or she then uh, announces the next game mm-hmm. which is called freeze tag or la switch which perhaps some of your listeners have played 
where you probably have to have two people on stage, you ask the audience for physical positions, they start a scene using those physical positions, they play a scene, and at any point, one of the other players may shout freeze and leap on stage, tag them out, take one of the positions, but using that position start an entire new scene. Right. It's, uh, we always say it's harder to explain than to do, because people quickly get the idea of how it works, mm -hmm. where in one scene I'm holding up a newspaper, freeze and then somebody takes my position it looks like i'm holding a steering wheel or something mm -hmm. like that so i'm using the exact same physical position so that goes on for uh, 10 minutes or so i suppose people say we probably play it longer than some others but again we're kind of creating the sitcom element which is there's callbacks and there's moments between players where to use improv terms or second city improv terms pimp and dimp you know you might Somebody say something, you, you know, I can see you're about to sing or something like that, which you can only play when you really trust with each other. And yeah. you're playing those moments of interpersonal sort of behind the scene moments as well. Anyway, the next one is called Who Am I? Uh, and this is where, and there are variations of this, but where one of us goes out of the theatre, can't hear what's being said on stage. And the audience then comes up with an idea for a job, an occupation. And when we started, the job would be police officer or chauffeur or waiter whatever and we've had to make it more and more difficult to make the scene last any length of time there was one time where we uh, i don't know which do you do you know what a pork pie is uh, well i think the the language itself describes what i think it is but <laughs> <laughs> well it's kind of a big kind of thick pasty suet lardy pie kind of a english empanada uh, yes and it's kind of it's kind of probably the worst cut of meat as well but anyway to keep the the pork in position, you have this kind of, uh, how was it called? Jelly kind of, is it aspic? I don't know. Really? Anyway, so. Um, well, you're selling it. I'm, <laughs> I'm selling it, aren't I? It sounds absolutely ghastly, but it's uh, it's kind of a delicacy. Yeah. Um, and I think recently uh, our prime minister said it was when things change and we have a trade agreement with the United States, just with Britain, pork pie would be one of the things that could be able to enter the American market. I'm not entirely <laughs> sure how the American market will take to these delicacies anyway so somebody's mentioned something in the opening uh, of this guessing the job and i think i said oh you mean i put the jelly in the pork pie mm. and that was it and that was the second line and so i had to go out again and guess uh, guess another more difficult job so nowadays it's the job tends to be um the person who um puts the plastic bit on the end of shoelaces okay. in australia on a Tuesday whilst wearing a Batman outfit using a sense of self or something like that. So you've, you've got lots of different suggestions from the audience because we've got very good at knowing from one another when it's the clue. Right, uh, right. When it's the, hey, this is the word. Oh, right, Australia. Okay, uh, we might find a pun or something like that. So it's a bit like a parlor game. There's a, uh, the, the, the improv purists, uh, of which I sometimes count myself, would say it's not entirely a fully improv game because you're often off stage thinking up clues to give to the person sure. it, rather than that in the moment. But the audience like it because they like to see that one of us doesn't know the answer. Mm -hmm. uh, it slightly changes the energy after freeze tag, which is highly energetic and uh, fast moving. And this is slightly slower, trying to create a scene, trying to create a sense of story if we sometimes fail in that. Mm -hmm. Then we have another one, which is we call foreign lecture. So somebody speaks in gibberish as if from somewhere else. And the audience has decided what the subjects are on which they're experts. Somebody else translates their purported gibberish into English. So somebody's going, 
Good, good afternoon. I'm great. Glad to be here. I'm going to talk to you about eggs mm-hmm. and also hairdressing or whatever. So again, those are the audience suggestions. Then we play a film and theatre genre game, and then it's the interval. And in the second half, we start either with we do a either a narrated scene with songs, a narrated musical, or we do some sort of more freeform improv, which we call Meanwhile, which is open scenes that could be 10 seconds, could be several minutes, where we ask the audience for a a subject. It may be a place they want to go to. It may be an occupation. It may be a color. It may be Mm -hmm. somewhere they would like to go or a hobby they're interested in. It may be one word. It may be several. It may be even a line of dialogue. So more freeform improv, which um, I quite enjoy um, uh, because I've done whole shows of that. For example, some years ago, we did a show. I did a show with Eddie Izzard and Stephen Frost and Suki Webster, which we called One Word Improv, where we just asked you it's for one word, and then we do a scene. And the, and the scene could be semiotics, it could be chicken, it could be carrot, it could be Ferrari, whatever. And the scene, we don't know when it's going to end. And in, in our version, we sort of when you get a laugh or it's reached some sort of narrative closure, yeah. we say thank you. Now, meanwhile, so and scene, you would say so that can last twenty minutes. So and all the narrated musical can last twenty minutes or so. Then we do a, a game which is an emo roller coaster, so asking for different emotions. Freeze, that's something emotion. Uh, and we finish off with a three headed expert. So the, uh, there's an interviewer who interviews three people who do one word at a time. Mm-hmm. And we've, uh, by, um, by inertia, we settled on the idea that the expert, the three headed expert, is an expert in teaching an animal a sport Mm -hmm. so teaching lions how to throw the javelin or something like that Mm. Um, again from the audience so you can see these are fairly standard games i'm sure that improvisers listening would know these games and might even think you know they're standard short form games and we just decided that we tried others we tried variants and and it kind of just felt like there's enough room for us to maneuver we know these work they all have an end in sight (laughs) freeze and curtain whatever or somebody saying if the scene dips a little freeze can we have another movie style or theater style there's enough structure for them we know that there's a safety net, if you like, if the scene uh, needs a bit of more energy or if it was a tough genre to do. Some audiences are more giving, if you like. Mm-hmm. If you, some audiences nowadays, I have to say, if you ask for a theatre genre, a style of theatre, they struggle. They might say puppet. <laughs> uh, they know mm-hmm. Shakespeare, they might say musicals, but there's not a lot of Ibsen or uh, Chekhov coming our way these days. Okay. And what was it the other day? Uh, the various things where you realise that we're all... We're pretty old. They don't know what we're talking. Android Weber, I suppose they might know. But uh, there are certain genres that they might choose that perhaps in years gone by, they wouldn't. We often get Bollywood these days. We wouldn't have got 20 years ago. That's coming much more into the sort of general consensus of what uh, people are aware of. Um, so that's, that's it. That's our show. Yeah. So when you have came to that sort of settled in on that lineup, I mean, you have a variety of handles on those games. Do you think you landed on that lineup based on your tastes or do you feel like the audience led you to that type of a structure? Well, who knows? Uh, I think it's probably a bit of both. And it's also to do with the exigencies of the stage that uh, we mm-hmm. we don't we don't have wings. It's quite a small stage. It's basically a stand up stage, but there's room for six people to stand close together. Okay. But there's no levels. There's no kind of coming on and off very easily and creating those moments that you might have if you had wing space or a large downstage 
front stage area. I don't know how often you perform elsewhere, but I think I see that you're going to be at the Globe Theater, and I think you've been there before. Yes. And that's that's not a stand-up stage. That's a very different no. type of stage. Well, it's interesting because we've played there now for 20 years, and we absolutely love it. Do you do anything different? Uh, we will do an improvised Shakespeare. Okay. We'll finish off and get the audience to give us a prequel or sequel to a Shakespeare or a Shakespeare-sounding title. So one time we had Omelette okay. or Romeo and Julian or something. So uh, what's interesting about that is that Mark Rylance, who used to run Shakespeare's Globe, the wonderful actor, always, you would come and see us and would always be delighted with how we did use the stage. Because actually, I don't know if you've seen the Globe or have a picture in your mind, but there are two great big pillars yeah. that mean that... Quite a lot of the audience, if you don't stand in the right place, can't see you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you stand sort of downstage center, some people can't see you. Upstage center, others can't see you. So uh, we just keep moving the whole time. But we do have the joy that you can look right across stage and get moments of stillness, of taking a beat as you give the focus to somebody on the other side of the stage, or there is a little balcony. Mm -hmm. where sometimes we can run up or even be in, in the crowd and the groundlings. It's this amazing feeling of 700 people standing up for the whole show, but it creates a party atmosphere before we even enter the stage. Yeah. So part of what we have to do in the opening is when we normally ask the audience, can we have a suggestion for this just to warm them up? You know, this is the kind of thing we'll be asking. It's try and calm people down <laughs> almost because mm -hmm. we have to say, we've got to do a show here. Don't just laugh at any old thing. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> they're, just, they're just having a great time. And those who are up above, upper circles, are having good fun looking down at the members of the audience, having a great time jostling and so forth. So we do love to play that. But you're right, it is quite different. We also played the open air theatre in Regent's Park and... Many of us do shows that are similar and around in, in bigger theatres. And we have to remind ourselves to play slightly differently, to slow down a little, to use the space, mm -hmm. to use a different kind of energy, which uh, you can't run around on the comedy store stage. Mm -hmm. If you want to do an energetic character, they're just running back and forth within the confines of, say, uh, eight feet or so, uh, the width and, and those six feet is the depth so now you have the joy of you can actually literally run hither and thither mm -hmm. round the pillars upstage backstage downstage um through doors as well that they have at the globe so those are those are the great fun to do and we do have to remind ourselves to use the stage not just stand where we might like to in the stand-up environment where the center bit is the good bit stand there and look left and right to the person who's just next to you now we can use much more movement and it's wonderful to do that but interestingly when they do plays there the directors have to think of the actors keeping moving you know the blocking has to be slightly different from it would be you know in a regular proscenium where you can be seen anytime anywhere really um so uh, it's wonderful to play bigger theaters and, I, and we do play the same games but as i say we have to be slightly uh, more aware of the uh, possibilities mm -hmm. and at shakespeare's globe we do an improvised shakespeare so we try and bring in the tropes of shakespeare so people falling in love people disguising themselves right. and quite often we end up everyone's dead okay um <laughs> <laughs> and then it becomes a race not to be the last one left because you have to finish the scene somehow, possibly with a, a rhyming couplet. Mm -hmm. So those are the that's the fun we have at Shakespeare's Globe. Yeah, uh, and it's a wonderful space to play. So with the 
cast that you have, I know you have some some guest performers who come in from time to time, but do you notice a difference in terms of how the audiences respond to you as a troupe that has been together for 20, 30 years versus how the audiences might have responded to you early on? Well... What I would say is, actually, we have guests every single show, so, so pretty much, okay. I would say. So there, there's a core group of six, and we will be back. The six will be back together in uh, this weekend, mm-hmm. for example. Having not Those six haven't been together, I think, probably for many months. That's unusual because some of the people on tour, Josie Lawrence, people might know, she was um, doing Oklahoma in an out-of-town theatre. So the six of us are back this Sunday, as it happens. But often there's... There's a guest, and sometimes there's up to five guests. So we have a group of six who have first refusal on the show. Uh, Paul Merton, for example, only does Sundays, doesn't do Wednesdays. He took that decision when we started doing Wednesdays to concentrate on on his other work. So we always have a guest on Wednesday, and quite often we can have three, four, five guests. Mm -hmm. And that keeps it rich. That keeps the energy up because each person brings their own style. Mm -hmm. And also, to be completely frank with you, the improvisers we have have been much better trained (laughs) than we have. As I say, they've come through a longer process. Yeah. So we learned on the job and possibly learned some bad habits. And maybe they're habits that are okay in that particular space at the comedy store. But we have the joy of sharing the stage with a couple of people, Pippa Evans and Ruth Bratt and some others, um, Lauren Shearing from Showstopper, which is an improvised musical mm. who won an Olivier Award in the West End when they have a band and they create an entire musical, a long-form show based on audience suggestions, a title the audience has given them and other inputs. And uh, there's another group called Ostentatious. Mm-hmm. And we have a, we have some people from that group as well. So they do an improvised Jane Austen. So again, they know how to create long form. They know how to create characters. They they really serve the story. And sometimes we we old hacks just do gags and we, sh- we need to learn from them. Uh, there's other groups who've come, who've done long form, who do, sh- should we say, improvised plays where it's it's not so much about just laughs. It can be about narrative and structure in a different way. Mm-hmm. Long form, short form. So they're they're teaching us, reminding us of the basics that perhaps we may have forgotten. Is that teaching coming on stage through experience, or are you actually? Yes. Okay. Yeah. No, we know that we used to do workshops every Wednesday that were open. We haven't done those for years because everyone does other stuff, and right. we kind of uh, on stage is where the, uh, as it were, the peer learning happens. What I would say, your question was, do the audience feel react differently? I think the audience is a little bit more au fait with improv, but whose line is anyway uh, is no longer shown in this country. So not everyone knows improv as well as they might have done at that stage. So when we started, people didn't know. Then they did know, uh, and they expected to see Clive Anderson or a host. And then we didn't have somebody like that. And then awareness may have trailed off a little bit. But people come and go. I mean, the audience, I would say. So there's some people who might come to... We've had periods of people come to every single show. Mm-hmm. Periods of people who come once a month or once a fortnight. And they'll, they'll react differently. Because, for example, I famously can't sing. So when my character is asked to sing, there's a kind of flurry of excitement from three people in the front row who, who just wonder, how am I going to cope? Right. Um, and how how is the rest of the 
podcast are not going to crack up at my dismal attempts at singing. And when will they come to rescue me and take over the song? But generally, the audience, um, you know, it could be people who've never seen improv. It could be people who've seen a bit of improv. See, it varies. That's certainly a fair answer to my question. I was looking at it from a little different angle, though, in that the comfort level uh, that you would have with each other from knowing each other that well, I would tend to think gives a sense of ease that you have with each other that I would guess, and I, I am asking the question, whether that impacts how the audience receives what it is that you perform. Okay. Well, I think there's an upside and a downside mm -hmm. to us knowing each other so well. Mm -hmm. The upside is we can go anywhere. We literally can break the fourth wall. Uh, we can try crazy stuff out. We can go on flights of fancy and challenge the audience's assumptions and they'll they'll love it they'll go with us when it soars on the other hand we have to remind ourselves that we're doing a job here and sometimes when the audience isn't in the palm of our hands we have to work a little bit harder mm. and we can't be too self-indulgent and mentioning something we know about that character you know that person's home life <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is a little self-indulgent and of course when the audience is with you and i say for example one time one character one actor was supposed to fall in love with the uh, his character's love with the sister of another actor and it turned out that actually that actor had slept with the sister of that actor oh. now <laughs> now that's that that when it when that was discovered that was hilarious mm -hmm. but you've got to be careful with that because if it, if the audience isn't with you that looks self-indulgent yeah. and there are times when we're chatting about something in the dressing room and suddenly something like that is mentioned on stage and then we literally have to say, actually, he was talking about that off stage now. We revealed he had done X, Y, Z. So we sort of, and we're letting the, in, the audience in on our secret. And that can look a bit self-indulgent if you're not careful or if you haven't brought the audience with you. So I would say that's why we sort of stuck to the same set list really now, because we know that we can go anywhere. We trust each other implicitly. But that's why it's good to have people who don't play with us week in, week out, because they bring a rigor and a difference to it. All of the improvisers we work with basically have the yes and in their mm -hmm. DNA, but they'll all bring a slightly different physical being, a narrative being. Some will be quite left field in their choices, and we all uh, have to work that much harder to keep the structure on on track. But that's what we like. We like having that energy and input of those who, who aren't doing it week in, week out, because they bring freshness and energy to it from which we can learn and not get too stuck in our ways. Yeah, I'd like to pivot a little bit in uh, the, the time that we have left for uh, our interview to chat a little bit about how you have taken the uh, yes and and improv to the marketplace, if you will. You have a book out, Seven Steps to Improve Your People Skills, and in that, you um, will refer to your experience as an improviser, as well as, I guess I would say, just your uh, research in terms of how people interact and how they might best uh, communicate and work together and collaborate. When you are dealing with a uh, business audience, uh, and I think you've been training business people in Yes And and Improv for uh, getting close to 20 years? Yeah, 20 years. I started in 1999, my first foray. Yeah. And what what is it that you think resonates with people 
in that context uh, about what we do on stage? I often ask this question because sometimes I'll do a workshop on a Thursday morning and they've seen the show on the Wednesday evening. And I ask them, what did you notice? What would you like to have? And they'll say confidence. They'll say teamwork. But ultimately, it comes down to rule one of improv for me is listening. Listen to your fellow player. And this is what I thought would be what improv could offer organizations. How do we really listen? Listening isn't passive for an improviser. It's listening such that I then give a response based on what you gave me. And we are together creating something for which we both share responsibility, but neither can claim sole authorship. And that simple metaphor and simple skill, which we call yes and, can apply to anything, to how people work together in teams, how leaders can better lead, how we can co-create, how customers can work better. We can work better with our customers and clients. And it's been a journey for me in many ways because I had that intuitive feeling that improv could help us communicate better, to have better conversation. Mm -hmm. And as it happens, that of course has been shown to be the case by all the people who've been through my workshop saying, yes, I can see how yes and can be helpful. I can see how I might default to yes but. And then we look at the nuance. But actually, things like yes and as an ethos, as a mindset. So leadership, there are lots of leadership theories about how do we cope with an uncertain world. The world's changing. The world is disruptive. Technology is changing. People are working together in different ways. And consumers are wanting different things. Citizens are wanting different things. How do we, how do we cope with that? And as an ethos, it says, when things change, I can still cope. Instead of saying, I must have a set in stone plan, can I adopt some improv approaches and a mindset, which is diversity can be creative. Divergent thinking, people think of different things right. is not a bad thing, but a creative thing. Of course, the skill comes then in how do I make sense of what seems to be a mess? And if anyone's ever seen an improv show, you'll see that it can verge towards chaos. Mm -hmm. But actually, the improviser is not trying to create chaos at all. She or he are trying to create from that chaos some sense of structure, some narrative, some thread that the audience will follow, and perhaps some closure at the end where typically the prince and princess will be together, the dragon will be vanquished, or the treasure will be found. And then so many things come from improv, which says uncertainty is a fact of life, how do we make ourselves use it and live without fear within it and pretend, not pretend that it doesn't exist, but this is here we are. This is what's happening. This is what's real now rather than mourning some mythical time when things were perfect. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's that vulnerability and humanity and the, the joy of the audience who see an improviser slightly wobble. It fails, uh, apparently. But then together, we as a team pick it up. In fact, that error, that mistake when somebody misspoke or forgot what their character was called, that then becomes the whole spine of the story. And that's the joy of improv where we share that vulnerability. And I've been educated, I must say, by writers and speakers who use similar metaphors. Vulnerability, for example, Brene Brown talks in her TED Talks about this, about vulnerability is the root of leadership, is the root of creativity. And that's not perhaps how much of our Western discourse would see things. But to me, it's essential that as human beings, we understand that we are flawed, that we share our humanity, and we have something in common, which is greater than that which divides us. So improv as a sort of simple people skill, are you really listening like an improviser? And the improviser actually stops too many things coming into their 
head because they're thinking, what's being given me by my partner? Mm-hmm. They actually sort of shut down uh, some elements of their attention to focus on the moment and the scene with their partner. And of course, there's so much in real life that uh, stops us really listening to our fellow player. And so those skills, uh, the people skill of how to have better conversations, which are more yes and, what's the things we have in common? Can we co-create? Can we move forward? Rather than stick to our existing positions, or I spend my time telling you why you're wrong and I'm right. The improviser is always thinking, how is my character changing in this scene? How does she learn in this moment? And if you had that kind of approach to a conversation into a business meeting, a client meeting, then how much more fruitful they would be. But there's also that thing as a general moment in life is, well, how can I say yes and to what's going on rather than saying, oh, things didn't work out or I didn't expect that or that person has the wrong motivation. I must dismiss their feelings and objectives. So it's, a, it's both a people skill and a mindset. And I think they're not in opposition at all. It's day to day stuff. How do I say hi to that person in work? And then how do I then think about what the bigger picture is? How can I how can I use what's going on around me? So there's a couple of threads that at least I pick up on on that um, description. And one, just to get back to the listening aspect, in terms of the impact of listening on the other person and kind of back and forth in that dyad of uh, hearing from each other as well as communicating while listening. You, you spend some time talking about how people are impacted by being listened to. Can you speak a little bit about that? Mm, well, thank you. <laughs> Certainly that is the nub of it, is how much do I feel more involved if you listen to me? How much as a team member will I feel valued and appreciated and want to get involved if my fellow players and my boss listens to me? And so many of the great leaders I've encountered are the ones who listen, who listen to the newest, the youngest, the apparently different Mm. voice that happens in in organizations. And of course, then if if I listen to you, you will more likely tell me, you will more likely come to me with ideas, you will more likely feel empowered to come up with new ideas or to say, well, actually, yeah, I will stay late in the office. Um, I will offer myself to be part of the team. So um, I, the chapters in my book concerning this, it's called Listen and Link, which is, a, which is kind of my version of yes and. It's listen to what the other person's saying and link to what matters to them. Um, and how much more rapport we can have with other people if we've listened to them. And frankly, the old cliche, we have two ears and one mouth. Use them in the same proportion. Uh, Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if even two to one is is Mm -hmm. right. But uh, those moments when listening is all the other person wants of us. I did a coaching course and different types of listening. And sometimes you've just got to sit and and listen. Mm -hmm. And to be an active listener, there was a great blog by Zynga Folkman in the Harvard Business Review 2016 about we think of listening as Possibly, you know, I sit back and I don't say anything, but I look at you and I nod. That's quite passive. And that metaphor might be like a sponge. And they interviewed three and a half thousand executives and found that it's it's a bit more active. It's kind of, you might butt in with a question. You might loop back to what they said before. You ask them to clarify that you're listening for the story behind it. To, so listening less as a sponge, more like a, more like a trampoline, they said. So the other per- person feels energized from your mm-hmm. listening. And uh, that requires you to 
expend some spirit and energy and emotion on on the listening process and we don't always have time for that and uh, we know that in a coaching environment that listening is is the way to do things but maybe in a day-to-day we don't always make time for that it's always getting on with stuff let's get the task completed uh, mm, later mm, i've got this thing to do oh yeah yeah that's the way you see it and so that, that real kind of listening will obviously make a difference in the person who is being listened to and even if we don't come across with a solution, right. if you like, which is possibly what some people think listening is. So let me just listen to your problem, then I'll tell you what you can do right. And that isn't always the best way of listening. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Stephen Covey in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said we often listen to respond rather than listen to understand. Well, I, I think probably people might think, well, I don't have time to do that sometimes. <laughs> right. I'm in a, in a hurry. And there may be moments like that. Of course there may be. Uh, it's just how we do that. In fact, I'm working now on a workshop I've been asked to create is how to say no, because there's a, a team that are just pretty ground down and they're all of a, of a personality type that says, yeah, I'll try and do it. They want to do the right thing. They want approval and they end up being frazzled and not doing what they should be doing because they're saying yes to too many people. So uh, how do we, and this is an improviser's um, task as well. How do we say mm. no? in a good way because we know in an improv scene that actually you're starting to funnel towards what's the narrative about so you're not saying yes to everything that's gone before well, you, you things might get lost in the way and you know that but how uh, seeing the moment of if i say no to this i'm actually saying yes mm-hmm. to what really matters that's oh. possibly what i'm trying to say is is seeing no sometimes as a as a yes to what you should be doing a, a sort of glib yes uh, and, and a yes that i don't really mean or that I don't think I can follow through, or actually I don't commit to, will ultimately fall down. So, uh, you know, sometimes I get people to think about what's the opposite of yes and, and mm. there really isn't an opposite. It's not no but, because no but could be no, but how about this? It could be, so mm. no but could be positive. It's, uh, you know, rather than a fake yes and uh, I'll get to it, we know that's not a real yes and. So I, I continually try and get people to see past yes and. And in fact, the book I'm planning right now is called Yes, But. <laughs> and sometimes, yes, but improv can't be the answer to everything, can it? So it's kind of getting to get people to think, well, uh, all the things I've said to you, and I'm sure you talk about in your work, with, which is is the fundamental joy of improv, the co-creation, the power of the yes and. What does that actually mean? And what are the moments when maybe yeah. that isn't the right answer so i was working with one group and she, she'd been on a workshop before and she said i don't want to say yes and because i don't mean it and i say fine <laughs> the words yes and aren't the answer uh, a fake yes and is worse than a no but a, a quick clear respectful no uh, no because is uh, is an acceptable improv um response i would say when i look at the, the the business training that i've done or just thinking about how you take these principles and put them out whether that's in a performance or a, a business training context i think a lot of it comes down to are you focusing on what the end product is or are you focusing on the human experience because the listening and the openness of having a yes and mindset to what someone has ultimately is an affirming a life-affirming kind of posture that you're taking towards someone, which we don't get in a steady supply in life. And that leads to good results. Yeah. And But that's, I think, in part because we give ourselves room to be human. Yeah. 
I wanted to ask one other question before uh, our time is up, and it, it relates to another comment that you, you made when we just get back to the comedy aspect of what you do. You have a line in your book that says that humor is a great way of reducing hierarchy and unease about status. Could you unpack that a little bit <laughs> in a in a short amount of time, I guess? Yes. Well, I uh, I had a whole I I I think humor is a leadership skill and I had a whole section which was cut from the book by my very wise editor about the different types of humor. And there's affiliative humor and disaffiliative. In in the end I summarized as jokes at somebody else's expense mm -hmm. is not humor. Jokes that can't recognize our common humanity, our fallibility, that's humor. Uh, jokes that make us see things in perspective, that's humor. So when a leader tells stories where he talks about his failures or she shares moments when she wasn't quite sure, that does help um, organizations work better together. And uh, the person who has just made a mistake, if they, the senior person can tell a story about how they made a mistake, what they learned from it and how they come through it, that surely makes something positive the, in the contribution. If it's... Um, Sharing the humor, which is, well, how the heck do we handle this? Oh, no, I don't know. Again, it creates that sense of we're in a team together. We're bonding through humor. Moments of when we remind ourselves of those tough moments. And we, now we can laugh about it. You know, They say that mm -hmm. humor is tragedy plus time. If we can laugh about those bad or down or disappointing or tough moments in the past, then they become part of our mm -hmm. shared humanity in a way, rather than a blot on our copybook. So that's what I would say is uh, effective use of humor, which can be self-deprecating, which can be encouraging rather than discouraging mm -hmm. or disaffiliative, are very powerful. And they transcend any sort of appraisal speak, which is, you know, these are your targets, you're going to do well. Those, it's like stories, like humor, they, they sort of, they, they connect us as human beings in a way that, should we say, more technical stuff doesn't. Well, Neil, I appreciate connecting with you as a human being on this uh, interview. I've really enjoyed hearing the history of how you got into improv and a little bit more about what you do. I really appreciate you spending time with me. Thank you. As I mentioned at the beginning, since our conversation, I continue to be struck by the consistency of Neil's experience with the Comedy Store players. I've been privileged to perform with some of the same folks in our group for a dozen years or more, but our venues are always different and we've added many new people to our team along the way. You'll note Neil's sensitivity to what works in different environments, whether that's in the nature of the stage, the room, the audience. It's an underappreciated art to size up a room and adjust your performance, whether that's your voice, your physicality, your stage picture, and so on, to maximize the impact of your show. I mentioned at the top of the episode that the Comedy Store Players is performing again at the Globe Theatre in London. That's on October 18th, 2019, shortly after this episode dropped. You can track Neil down at Neil Malarkey on Facebook and Twitter. And you can get a lot of info on all things Neil at neilmalarkey.com, including info on his book, Seven Steps to Improve Your People Skills. This and more will be linked to on the episode page at improvcomedyconnection.com. If this has been useful to you, please spread the word, rate, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you think this could be more useful or you have a great idea for a topic or a guest for a future episode, let me know. I'm doing this to be of help to you as we work together to connect more deeply with each other and our audiences through comedy. It's been my pleasure to be your host on this episode of the Improv Comedy Connection. My name again is Whit Schiller and I'm an improviser out of Milwaukee with Fish Six Comedy. 
You can check us out at fish6comedy.com, and you can connect with me on social media, at Witchiller, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can also look for my profile on classmates.com, where you can find an impassioned treatment of the objective truth that Chargers rule and Blue Jays drool. Thanks again for tuning in to the Improv Comedy Connection.